Hello everybody, welcome back to another week of DQ with Damani. I am your host, the one, the only, Le Tigre, Damani Madir. And yes, I am disappointed. Before anybody even comes to me in person or says anything to me on social media, yes, I am disappointed. I am extremely disappointed. This week, I was supposed to be dedicating this episode to Charlo and Canelo. This, this is the fight that we should all be focusing on. But for some strange reason, our GOAT, the one that we placed all of our hopes and dreams on, Israel Adesanya, Izzy lost to Sean Strickland. And I don't understand why people are just now starting to understand the impact that MMA has on combat sports. We, we're, we're obviously going to have our monumental fights in boxing. We're going to have Triple G versus Canelo. We're going to have Spencer Crawford. We're going to have Wilder and Fury. Yes, those are all great fights. But MMA recently has just been sending shockwaves through the combat sports world. And this fight two nights ago proves that exactly. The fact that somebody like Sean Strickland can win and have the support of not just America, but the entire world behind him is beautiful. It's beautiful. And I'm very happy for Sean Strickland. But I am just heartbroken and disappointed for Izzy because this this is the second loss that he suffered in such a short span of time. Yes, I understand that it's been some months and people are going to say, oh, but it, it, it was some months. He'll be okay. In, in the world of combat sports, those months don't even feel like months. You can spend a considerable amount of time inside and outside of camp and it'll feel like nothing to you because those fights eat up so much of your time you spend so much time away from your family so much time away from your friends that those months don't even feel like months to you anymore and i'm sure that's exactly what adesanya is feeling right now although i'm not adesanya and i can't speak for him i i know for a fact that inside of his head that is registering i just lost for the second time so quickly, I don't know what's next. Is a rematch next or am I going to move up? And of course, I'm trying to think about this through this the the point of view of someone who has lost. I'm not thinking about this as if he's still champion. I'm analyzing this as if he's someone who has to start all over again. Because to the UFC and to the people all around the world, people are right now, I, I promise you, you can go look right now. People are saying that this doesn't need a rematch, which is absurd to me. But that's not what we're here for. We will discuss the Adesanya fight at a later section of this episode. Because right now, like I promised all of you adoring fans of the DQ with Damani podcast, we are talking about the greatest, arguably, arguably, because I know a lot of people are saying that Julio Cesar Chavez is definitely number one in their opinion, arguably the greatest Mexican fighter of all time. Canelo Alvarez versus Jermel Charlo. Undisputed versus undisputed. Let's get straight into it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I want everybody to get hyped because this is the moment that we have all been waiting for. The analysis. Yes. The most important part of this show we are getting to for the first time ever in the very first section. So let's get into it. I think that many of you people are starting to forget just how well Canelo touches the body on people who are taller than him. Obviously, when he's fighting someone who's of similar height, he's going to have a lot more difficulty to dig into the body because the body is 
just about at the same level as his, and he has a lot of trouble starting to dig. He prefers to throw headshots against guys who are the same height as him, but since he is fighting Jermel Charlo, I want to point people in the direction of the Liam Smith and Canelo fight that happened a couple of years ago. Let's focus on that specifically because Liam and Jermel have pretty similar physical dimensions as far as height and reach goes. Let's not get into the power debate yet because that is an entirely different discussion. For right now, let's focus on the physical dimensions and the kinds of advantages that Canelo will have over Jermel Charlo because of his height. Now, a lot of people think that being the shorter fighter puts you at a disadvantage, but when it comes to fights at super middleweight, fights at light heavyweight, fights at heavyweight, being the shorter guy sometimes can be advantageous, especially against someone who's straight punch heavy. If you have a fighter who's straight punch heavy, you know for a fact that your range of counters is a lot greater than a guy who's very unorthodox, a guy who likes to slug, a guy who really likes to impose his physical will on you, such as Liam Smith. Now, in that Smith fight, Canelo did get touched up a lot of times. There were several occasions in which Liam Smith hit Canelo clean, or he tipped his guard just enough to send a little bit of a shock through his body. But Canelo was able to come back through the routes to the body, especially the one, two, three body shot, body shot, left hook, or he would switch it up and reverse it, left hook, body shot. Now, what gives you those routes to the body being the shorter fighter firstly and secondly getting your opponent to raise and drop their hands according to your level change seeing a fighter level change at a specific distance can be a lot easier than fighting a short guy and realizing oh man i can't even tell whether or not he's going to change levels because he's so small to me Ganello at that height liam smith and charlo at that height there is an obvious difference if we were to go guard to guard and look specifically at how these guys size up especially in the smith fight canelo is just about at the neck and chest area he's about five eight not very tall and this is exactly where the advantage comes in if you're just guard to guard and you and your opponent's heads are at pretty much the exact same level, you're not going to have the same advantage to the body as someone who's shorter than you because they're right there on that body. The left and the right sides of the body where the elbow may or may not be tucked are right there for a shorter opponent. And that is precisely why Canelo was able to take advantage of the body so well against someone so tall as Liam Smith. Even his brother, Caleb, had the exact same problems against Canelo. He was just too tall for his own good. Yes, he is very, very great for a light heavyweight, but facing a guy smaller than him moving up in weight, everyone could tell immediately that the body was going to be the most important thing to protect against Canelo. Because once again, being at eye level with someone is much different than having someone digging into your chest and digging into your body. Very, very different. And it's tough to fight a short guy as a tall person sometimes. Since we're discussing routes to the body, I think that it's worth analyzing how many different ways Canelo is able to dig his left and his right hand there. Canelo favors his uppercuts into his body shots a lot, whether it's the rear hand uppercut into the left body shot 
or the lead uppercut into the left body shot. It is incredibly obvious he enjoys setting these shots up with an uppercut to draw the guard up. Another setup shot that Canelo uses is the double jab into the right hand. In all three Triple G contests, I will say that one more time, all three Triple G contests, Canelo used the double jab as a range finder to cleanly place his right hand on the gap between Triple G's elbow and Serratus' anterior. Sometimes, if you look close enough, you can notice that the jab doesn't always get through the guard. It's just there to get Canelo comfortable throwing low because he knows how close or how far he needs to be. Against Caleb Plant and Billy Joe Saunders, Canelo's shot selection looked much different. Against BJS specifically, he threw high and then low in two phases of punches. Remember, first phase, second phase has been coined by Kenny Porter and Showtime Sean Porter. Just to let y'all know, want to give y'all credit to them. As always, I always show love to Sean Porter. As I should regardless. Ain't no reason to hate on that, man. Now, after testing whether or not Billy Joe Saunders would react, Canelo would shoot a left shovel hook to drain Billy Joe's gas tank. This worked in his favor, earning him an eighth round corner retirement. Canelo was able to throw the double jab into the right hook, either straight into the arms of the guard or placed it right on BJ's ear. Now, those setup punches directly coincide with the ability to land the left or right hook onto the body. Now against Caleb Plant, Canelo was very cross heavy. The right hand was the money shot from round one to round 11. Between shooting the cross and the right hook to the body, Canelo's right hand was incredibly active. Caleb Plant's footwork and lead hand, sweet hands plant, was the main deterrent to Canelo getting inside. But just like BJS, he fell victim to Canelo's precision, timing, and forward pressure, which I praise him heavily on week in and week out on this show. When we do discuss him, of course. Caleb danced around the ring with ease, but he found himself caught on the ropes and in the corner several times. When Plant hit the turnbuckles, Canelo fired off three-piece, one-phase combinations, most of them starting with his left hand. Canelo also took a page out of Shakur Stevenson's textbook by using his left as a placeholder, leaving it in front of Plant's face to drop the cross right after. This was the story of their fight, and I think that this might be the same for Canelo and Charlo. If Canelo is able to find his right hand, then there will most certainly be trouble for Jamel Charlo. As for Charlo, the work is going to be simple. Similar to what I said about Joshua's original matchup against Usyk in the first fight, Charlo has to fight his size. If Charlo decides to slug it out and meet Canelo in the middle, then he's definitely going to be putting himself in unnecessary danger. He has the height advantage, and without a doubt, he has the reach advantage. Using those two physical tools already gives him an edge opponents like the Smith brothers and Caleb Plant had. All that's left is for him to avoid making the same mistakes that those people I just named made. Smith lost because he did exactly what I just discussed, slugging instead of boxing. Plant lost because he got trapped against the ropes too often, which brings me to my next point. If Charlo can avoid giving Canelo opportunities to cut the ring off, he won't find himself on the receiving end of a knockout like Smith did. One skill that I know a lot of people appreciate is Charlo's head movement and his ability to slip and rip. Yes, sir. 
This was on full display against Tony Harrison, giving Charlo access to the right hook to the body and a right hook over the top. It was truly the sweet science in full swing, and I know a lot of people became fans of Jermel Charlo after that performance. Whether or not he'll be able to repeat this against Canelo all depends on how much he's paid attention to Canelo's best shots. It'll be a challenge for Charlo because Canelo is shorter than him and he'll be aiming upward. He has the lower center of gravity, so it's going to be hard to develop a strong head movement strategy. I've seen him in camp with Juan Guzman, so I know for a fact that they're cooking up something spicy for Canelo. From the clips that we've seen so far, of course, Charlo is working shots to the body and getting out of range. Dipping in and out like Shakur Stevenson does with his supreme footwork is a part of the game plan, clearly. So I'm looking forward to what else the team will do to build off of this. Don't forget, September 30th, the biggest fight in boxing history will light up the world. Undisputed versus undisputed, eight belts on the center stage. Don't miss it. Now, I know we locked in on the Canelo fight in two weeks' time, but I have even more horrible news regarding Tyson Fury. I know, I know, more Tyson Fury garbage. In yet another media fallout, Fury is insinuating that a fourth fight between himself and Deontay Wilder is off the table. The WBC and Mauricio Suleiman announced this week that if Wilder and Anthony Joshua are able to reach an agreement, that their fight will be a WBC final eliminator for Tyson Fury's WBC heavyweight championship. This means that regardless of what happens in Saudi Arabia against Francis Ngannou, Tyson Fury will have to defend his belt against either man. Obviously, Fury's comments are a massive issue because he is stalling the division yet again putting it on hold so that he can play fake matchmaker and demand more money for crazy contests. Just listen to what Fury had to say on ESPN's first take. Wilder wants to fight you again. I don't know. I give him a hell of a beating three times, so it'd have to be stupid to want to fight again. Yes. That's for sure. Well, look. Zero possibilities. I already spanked him three times. You what? Okay. Well, the first fight was a draw. First fight was a draw. He did drop you twice. Yeah, you know I won that fight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know I won that fight. You clearly won the last two. I don't know about that first one. Not now. Nah, you drop on your guy up here with me. Stop the cap. <laughs> Stop the cap right now. Stop the cap. No bullshit, bro. Second two, I knocked his ass out. Right. Disrespectful. Absolutely disrespectful. Especially after Deontay Wilder just announced that he's going to keep boxing for only three more years. That means a maximum of two to three fights left and denying him a potential title shot, even if he wins against Joshua, is disgusting to me. I don't want to see Wilder fighting for the WBA Gold Championship or any other placeholder title. Continental America's none of that garbage. I'm tired of the division being paused and then started again. I think it would be best for everyone to take the Usyk route instead, become mandatory for Usyk, because it's obvious that Tyson Fury doesn't want any serious challenges for his belt. I know it sounds like I do it to myself most of the time, and I do. I know I do, y'all. I'm serious. I say I won't talk about Fury, but somehow I end up talking about him one way or another. And as a journalist... As an athlete, I have a responsibility to my people, but it's really getting sad hearing 
how desperately this man, Fury, wants to avoid real comp. He doesn't want any real competition, and it's so obvious by now. It's no secret that the heavyweight division is the most dangerous, but there's no excuse to be the leading champion and not pursue all challenges possible. I'm always going to keep it 100 on the DQ with Damani podcast. And like usual, I can have absolutely nothing else but hope for the future. That's all, y'all. That's all I could do. Just hope. All right. Now we've got to the point that all of my MMA UFC fans have been waiting for specifically. I teased it in the beginning of the episode, but now it's time to finally dig in and feast on the disgusting performance that our boy, Israel Adesanya, the last stylebender, had on Saturday. Now, he is probably the most memed fighter on earth. I'm seeing memes of just about everything of this man, Adesanya. He is getting fried on the internet. Now, he is the man to fall to the biggest upset in UFC history. I don't know what happened on Saturday night. Dana White said it perfectly at the post-fight press conference. Izzy was moving in slow motion there's no excuses either Izzy didn't look drained on the scale he most certainly didn't look tired during the fight his striking and his footwork were just poor the strangest part is that Izzy regularly uploads what he does in camp so the idea that he was underprepared for Sean Strickland is impossible that's just not possible y'all he trained hard which is to be expected of any Adesanya camp and while people are still struggling to find answers I think the most obvious thing might be Sean Strickland's defense the Philly show made a major appearance during the fight, and Sean Strickland made the best use of it I've probably ever seen in the sport outside of Dustin Poirier. Adesanya couldn't touch Strickland with anything, and he was getting counterpunched on every exchange from round one to round five. I think this fight was a testament to the ability of the Philly show and its uses in MMA. If someone tries hard enough to adapt it into their own style, it will work. There have been plenty of professional MMA fighters who have advised against using it, but Sean Strickland made it work just fine. I really like Sean Strickland's cross too. In the first round, there was nothing but perfection from him in terms of reacting to shots. Adesanya bit really hard and threw the same left hook that resulted in Alex Pereira getting knocked out by none other than himself. And Strickland responded by throwing the sweetest and I mean sweetest cross counter I've seen all year. That took crazy vision himself to throw and land. And I seriously hope people are giving credit to Sean Strickland for that. Because that shot is one in a million. Even in boxing. Other than that, Adesanya didn't throw very many kicks. It was shocking to see that as well because he's usually very kick heavy. And even with his feints, he's very active with his feet. It's very strange to see that from him absolutely none of that were there there was there was no feigning there were no leg kick feints no body kick feints none of that was there absolutely none of it it was like Adesanya was a completely different fighter very shy with his strikes the exact opposite of the way he usually fights I have absolutely no idea what happened only Adesanya himself can speak on the mentality he had during the match the real shocker comes when you look at the actual strike totals for each man Adesanya threw 271 strikes overall, while Strickland threw 259. Those numbers give the impression that Adesanya was more active, but in reality, he was only active in rounds two and three. He also missed the head frequently. 
landing 40% of his shots to the body, but only 23% of his shots to the head. It was a very disappointing performance for him, but a history-defining one for Sean Strickland. I'm very proud of the work that he put in, and I very much look forward to seeing the great things that Sean Strickland will do as the new undisputed UFC middleweight champion of the world. So remember last week when I came on this show and I told y'all that Shakur and Frank Martin were going to be fighting? Yeah, sounds like that's a whole bunch of cap now. All of that is cap. We are just now getting the news that our boy, Frank Martin, is a duck. He ducked that smoke. He did not want no types of smoke with Shakur Stevenson, and it shows. And now he's going on Twitter saying... Oh, no, nah, I'm not no duck. I'm not no duck. My brother in Christ, you wanted 50-50. 50-50 for the biggest opportunity of your life. A, a vacant WBC championship. Not just the WBC championship. A vacant WBC championship. You're turning the opportunity of a lifetime down for 50-50? Anyone else in their right mind, even me, I would take the 25%. The 25%? For a chance at a vacant world title? Are you crazy? That that made absolutely no sense to me. And then he's going to claim that he's not a duck when it's super obvious that you are, bro. There's no excuses for that. Any other champion would say the exact same. So I don't want to see anybody saying, oh, no, Shakur is bugging for calling Frank a duck. No, he's calling it like it is. If it quacks like a duck and if it walks like a duck, it is a duck. And that boy Frank Martin is a duck. Absolutely 100,000% a duck. And I don't want to hear anybody saying otherwise. The 135-pound division has suffered greatly because of this. Pitbull Cruz, what happened when he got offered the same exact thing against Shakur? Ducked. And then his pop's going to come out and say, oh, no, uh, well, we wanted better opportunities for my son. No, your son's a duck. Your son's a duck and you're a duck, too. And that, that's just how boxing works sometimes. Not, not even just boxing. Scratch that. Combat sports, period, because I'm starting to realize that this is becoming a continuing trend across pretty much every combat sport. Even wrestling, sometimes you'll see guys do this. Guys will... I'll randomly just pull out, oh man, well, I had it kind of tough this time around, my training. No, it had nothing to do with the training. It had nothing to do with money. It had everything to do with you not wanting to fight because you didn't want that smoke. That's it. You're a duck. Deal with it. Now on to a much more calm and relaxing topic, but still exciting. Regis Prograde and Devin Haney is now official for December 9th on DAZN. Yes, it is confirmed that they will be fighting on DAZN. The trash talk between the two men has been going on for months already, but the time for talk is over. Both men now are ready to jump straight into camp for this legacy-defining fight. Devin Haney is very confident in himself and his skills, but the public isn't very convinced. The Lomachenko fight clearly changed how people view Devin Haney. Everyone knows the reason why. The fight really wasn't 100% in Haney's favor to a lot of people. I myself have spoken on the topic already, and I don't feel like I need to repeat myself. Go back and watch the episode, and you will hear my complete thoughts on the matter, the fight, analysis, etc. Now, Regis Progre and Devin Haney is important because at 140 pounds, there are belts all over the place. It is pretty much a treasure hunt at 140, and I've spoken on this situation multiple times on the show already. We have our boy, Roly, Rolando, Romero, 
hanging on to his little championship. You've got a whole bunch of comp at 140 that Regis Prograde could unify with. But now, with the opportunity ripe for the taking, the 135-pound undisputed champion in Devin Haney is rising to the occasion, moving up a weight class and saying, you know what? It's time you take on me. Let's make history together. Let's do it. And that's exactly why Regis Prograde agreed to fight him. Now, Eddie Hearn, as we all know, is a promoting genius. He's had so many different fighters produce so many star-studded fights. He's had Triple G and Canelo. He's had Canelo under his own contract. It, it, it works perfectly in Eddie Hearn's favor most of the time. Obviously, he's had a whole bunch of screw-ups recently, but now he's back on track with this fight. I am very excited to say that I am going to try to attend this fight. I'm going to try in my best, best, best efforts. If it is somewhere on the East Coast, I will make a serious serious attempt to get out there so i could give you guys live reporting from the fight if not of course it will still have its own episode exclusively on the dq with Damani podcast all right everybody we have reached the end of another wonderful week of dq with Damani. you already know that i was very happy to deliver this week's episode to you all although i am very disappointed that adesanya lost i am very happy for sean strickland there is a new story in the UFC middleweight division. And now we know who's the duck, who isn't at 135. And of course, September 30th, Canelo versus Charlo. I am very excited for that. I know all my razas are going to be popping out. We are going to have a great time. We definitely going to be cooking up food in the kitchen. So make sure you grab yourself a plate. All right, let's wrap this up. We're going out this weekend. Make sure you drive safe and you don't drive under the influence. Peace. Okay.